Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during the work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do during these talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT Conference, which we host twice a year, uh, once in the United States and once internationally, most recently in the UAE uh, in 2019. And what we're trying to do during these talks and at our conferences is provide a platform uh, for subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for big ideas that we think are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Peter Baker and Susan Glasser to SALT Talks. Uh, Peter is the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. He's a political analyst for MSNBC and is the author of Days of Fire and the Breach. Uh, Susan Glasser is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of its weekly Letters from Trump's Washington, as well as a CNN global affairs analyst. Uh, Susan and Peter are married and their first assignment as a married couple was as Moscow bureau chiefs for the Washington Post, after which they wrote Kremlin Rising. Uh, Peter and Susan today live in Washington, D.C. with their son. Just a reminder, if you have any questions for Peter or Susan during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. Uh, and hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. John, thank you. And uh, as I'm wont to do, uh, holding up the book here, congratulations, guys. It's a brilliant tour de force. A lot of post-World War II history in this book, lots of discussion about how we got to where we are today related to the Republican Party, so very highly recommended. I'd like to start uh, with you, Susan. For those of us that are less familiar, I'm not, but a lot of people may be with James Baker. Who is he? What is his more signature accomplishments? And why did you guys choose to write a book about him right now? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you to uh, for having us. Uh, you know, in this nice, nice, quiet period in our nation's politics, we can just, you know, sort of sit back and talk history. But you know, you're right that Jim Baker, as a subject, turned out to be, I think, sort of oddly relevant to the moment. That was not necessarily our intention when we began this seven years ago. <laughs> Uh, you know, Donald Trump had yet to appear uh, on the scene in terms of Washington politics, at least. Uh, but Jim Baker, I think already even then, our interest was in a big subject about Washington and understanding how had Washington uh, become such a dysfunctional gridlock place. Uh, the period that Jim Baker uh, helps us tell the story of our politics, really, he was at the height of power from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War. And, you know, he has this incredible unique portfolio, right, where he is both uh, a national political figure of a sort of extraordinary accomplishment. He actually ran five different national presidential campaigns. And he also rose to become a, a principal in his own right. That's Washington speak for, you know, big mocker who gets a seat at the table. Uh, and so he was not only chief of staff in Ronald Reagan's White House and later in George H.W. Bush's, he's the only person ever to be chief of staff twice, but he also was secretary of the treasury uh, when they negotiated and successfully uh, made the 1986 tax reform bill. And then he of course became secretary of state at the end of the Cold War in this momentous period from 1989 to 1992. 
If he had a worldview, Peter, what was his worldview and what were his ideological goals? Uh, if yeah, there were any. It's a great question because we, we think of Baker, of course, uh, as a pragmatist. He, 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 look, he was a Texas conservative, small C, but he didn't let ideology stand in the way of getting things done. And I think that if he had an ideology, his ideology was make things happen, get things done, move the ball down the field. And it, it, you know, he, if he had to compromise to do it, that was okay. And that's why his story is so interesting today, right? Because we don't see a lot of that in Washington. Today, politics is so zero sum that if you're having a negotiation and you give anything away to the other side, somehow it means you sold out. Compromise is a dirty word. But for Baker, compromise was how you got things done. If you, you could be a ruthless knife fighter in election season, but when it was over, you sat down with the other side and you worked out deals on taxes, as Susan said, on Social Security, on the Contra War of the 1980s. He sat down with the Soviets, obviously, and the Germans and the Middle and, and the Arabs and the Israelis. And for Baker, while he was a conservative, I think the biggest ideology for him was, what do you need to do to get things accomplished? You know, for, for me, when I was reading this book, it was reminiscent of Robert Moses' book, The Power Broker, uh, uh, which I think is, sorry, Robert Caro's book about Robert Moses, known as The Power Broker, because it was a tour de force on somebody that didn't have elected office, but was really at the center of monumental decisions and policy. And one of the things that struck me about James Baker is that he would recoil from speaking out against policy initiatives or decisions that didn't necessarily go the way he thought they should be or they were more controversial. I'll give the, the biggest example. He called President Trump crazy in 2016, yet he went and voted for him. He also refused to break away from him in the 2020 election. And so what does this say to both of you about the allure of power uh, James Baker himself, but just what Washington's all about. Well, you're you're right to 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 point that out. That was a, a sort of an interesting counterpoint to our historical research for this book. Was also the rise of Trump is happening in real time, and uh, you know definitely Jim Baker saw this as a hostile takeover of the Republican Party that he felt that he had sort of given his life to building uh, in so many ways. Uh, he's the un-Trump, right, in terms of uh, both a sense of personal integrity, but also uh, just in terms of ideologically, right? He's still a very committed uh, internationalist uh, who believed uh, in alliances, a free trader, uh, you know, uh, an enemy of deficits, uh, and, uh, you know, in favor of telling it like it is, right? You know, that's the thing about a pragmatist. <laughs> you have to have a reality-based view of the world if you're going to be a practitioner of realpolitik as opposed to a kind of, you know, non-reality-based view of the world. And, uh, and yet he wasn't able, as you said, to fully renounce Donald Trump. And, and for us, I think that's why the book is, it's a study of power and it's not a celebration of it, right? That it's, it's a way of understanding that, that for someone like Jim Baker having, maintaining your access, that really there's no point in kind of like, uh, you know, pissing on the outside, uh, that you really don't get anything done by simply being a critic. And uh, it wasn't just Donald Trump, that was his view of the Iraq war when his best friend's son, George W. Bush was president. Uh, Jim Baker was absolutely against that war. He thought it was a terrible idea, uh, but somehow managed to make his uh, concerns and opposition known, but without blowing up his bridges to George W. Bush. I think that's kind of another example of how he thought uh, Washington operated. Well, you know, I, I guess the thing that struck me about the book, you started writing it during the Obama administration. 
uh, and then the Trump administration starts to unfold on us. And I'm wondering, uh, maybe this is for you, Peter, how, how do you think Baker's style and politics, uh, did it lead us to Trumpism? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, right? Because there are, you know, we talked a little bit about this before going on air, right? The resentment toward Washington that fuels President Trump's rise is a resentment toward the establishment that Jim Baker was so much a part of, right? Now, did he do something specifically to lead to Trumpism? No, he, he's anti-Trump in so many different ways. But I think that there is this backlash toward the elites, the backlash toward a Washington that seemed very comfortable and entitled and, you know, part of, uh, uh, you know, a ruling class that didn't really understand what it was like to live in so much of the country. And so in that sense, you know, Trump represented a rejection of not just the, the Democrats, but ultimately the Republicans of the previous era in that sense. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, people might not have bought what they thought they were buying in, in, in voting for President Trump. Uh, but there's no question, I think, that a lot of people were motivated by a sense that Washington had gotten away from them. What they lost, though, what they didn't see, I think, is that Washington did actually work uh, in a way that it hasn't in the last four years, and that par paralysis of the last four years hasn't made anything better for a lot of people out there who resented uh, what had come before. And so, you know, I think that Baker is a fascinating figure in that sense of, of representing what you say, what, you know, part of the, 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 the rejection of Washington. I want to take you back to one of the more fascinating stories in the book. Uh, uh, James Baker is the campaign manager effectively for George Herbert Walker Bush in 1980. They win the Iowa caucus, uh, but they go on to lose the nomination. Uh, Ronald Reagan ascends in New Hampshire uh, and they get to the convention. Uh, tell us about the selection of George Herbert Walker Bush as vice president. And then the eventual selection by Ronald Reagan of James Baker to be his chief of staff, yeah. who they were adversaries six, eight months prior to that. Well, that's right. It is one of the most amazing chapters, uh, really, because, of course, without that. Love that chapter, by the way. I just uh, be, be editorializing right here. It's, just a fascinating human story, please. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, that. no, you're right, absolutely. Because Baker actually wouldn't have become Baker uh, without that that incredible period of time. And so he and George Herbert Walker Bush were best friends from the country club of uh, you know tennis courts in Houston. They uh, had you know Baker had gone into politics really at Bush's urging. He turned out to be great at it. He runs this 1980 campaign and he takes. Uh, Bush from an asterisk in the polls, literally an asterisk, uh, to be Reagan's main uh, rival for the Republican nomination. But, uh, you know, they're not going to beat uh, Reagan ultimately. And Baker here, I think, shows this sort of um, this canniness that he, he later became known for, right? He understands that the goal at that point is not winning the nomination that they're not going to win. But in a way, his campaign is on now to get Bush that vice presidential nomination. And there's a real dance they have to do later in the primaries where Bush is out there, he wants to win, very competitive guy, just like Baker. And, you know, he's running against Reagan. He uses the phrase voodoo economics, which was one of the most memorable attack lines on Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, that there was. And Baker's actually mad at him. He's worried that he's going too far in attacking Reagan and that ultimately that might doom his chances. And so in the end, actually, it was Baker and not Bush who really forced Bush to pull the plug on his primary campaign. Uh, and, you know, Bush and his family weren't ready to do so. They were resentful of Baker for saying, now's the time to get out. If you still want to keep your uh, hopes alive, they did it. 
bruised feelings. And yet Baker ultimately was, was correct in many ways, you could say, because they had just left it open. But amazingly, at the 1980 convention, the big talk was that somehow Reagan might actually pick Jerry Ford, the former president. Uh, and that had the entire convention uh, in an uproar. Uh, and it actually sort of faltered at the very last minute on these negotiations. You know, what would it be like to have a former president as the vice president and who would really be in charge? And Ford overreached essentially by asking for uh, too much stature, too much authority. Uh, and Reagan just couldn't go there. And there was nobody left to call. But um, George Bush, who didn't think he would get it, by the way, interestingly, uh, when the call finally came. Yeah, it's an amazing story. I don't want to give up the intrigue in the story, but it's a human story. It's power politics. It's the practicality of the campaign, what they need to do to beat a sitting president. And as we all know, there's only been three sitting presidents that have lost re-election since World War II, Jimmy Carter being among them. Uh, Baker was best friends with George Herbert Walker Bush, but they had a very complicated relationship. So, so what was that relationship? How would you define that connectivity between the two of them? Yeah, you know, we interviewed President Bush before he passed away, and, and we obviously we interviewed Jim Baker an awful lot for this book, and both of them used the phrase siblings to describe it, that they were like brothers. And if you think about it, brothers, of course, sometimes fight, and sometimes they have a rivalry, sibling rivalry, they're competitive. Uh, they want to prove, you know, something to each other at times. So there I'm are moments. I'm still mad at my brother for incidents that took place in 1971. I just want to make sure everybody knows that. <laughs> exactly right, and you, but you love him to death, right? And he is, you know, he is your brother. He will always be your brother. And I think that was the case of Baker and Bush. So they have moments of friction, like what Susan described when they were upset at Baker for pushing them in 1980 to drop out in 1992, when Baker was reluctant to come back to the White House to help. Bush's flagging campaign for re-election. There was some sourness there. Uh, you know, when Bush picks Quayle to be his running mate, arguably without telling uh, Baker, that's kind of an act of rebellion against Baker. Why do I always have to listen to him? I know what I'm doing. I'm the president. In fact, when Baker would get on Bush's nerves, what Bush would say to him was, well, how, if you're so smart, how come you're not president, right? So there was this kind of sibling push and pull. But the thing that really tells you why there's such a profound friendship that, that it supersedes all that is the last day of George Bush's life. And that was just two years ago. And the person who comes to his house three times that day in Houston is Jim Baker checking in on his friend. Uh, and the last few moments of Bush's life, he's by his bedside, literally rubbing Bush's feet in the final you know, moments of his life. That's a friendship that goes beyond politics. And it, because it, as Susan said, it preceded politics because they were tennis partners and friends, family pals, their, their families got together in Houston. They had a relationship unlike any president and American and a secretary of state, I think, in American history. So I think that gave Baker power, by the way, as a secretary of state. But it's also a very human story, as you say. Uh, look, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story. It makes you feel proud to be American when you think about the character of both of those men. Uh, Baker recognized something about Washington, that there was a perception to power as much as there was real power. You guys address it in the book. and. Uh, you also had a uh, knack for playing the media a certain way. And I was wondering if you guys could explain that as well. Yeah, no, image management was definitely one of his superpowers. Uh, uh, and I'm sure, you know, as a fellow practitioner, you can uh, appreciate some of these skills, which really transfer, even though the media world has fragmented and changed. I'm not that great at image management. So what you <laughs> see is what you get, okay? I don't, have, I don't have three sticks next to my last name, but go ahead, keep going. <laughs> Uh, 
you know, he was he was sort of a natural at it. I mean, you know, from a purely absolutely selfish journalist point of view, right? Uh, you gotta appreciate a man whose motto was never lie to the press. Uh, now he might spin them aggressively, and he certainly did so. Uh, but Baker's skill was actually in in managing the press rather than uh, being at war with them. And he he took that away from his very first assignment in the national stage in 1976 when he became literally in one year, amazing rise. He went from an obscure position at the Commerce Department to running uh, Jerry Ford's campaign. And at the convention in 1976, the last disputed convention, here he is this novice in politics. He's up against Ronald Reagan. John Sears, the campaign manager for Reagan, basically was a BSer. And he, um, you know, was telling the reporters all sorts of inflated vote counts that turned out to not hold up, whereas Baker was much more cautious and earned this enormous credibility with the National Press Corps that uh, he carried that lesson with him. In the Reagan White House, famously backbiting, one of Baker's great skills that I think enabled him to consolidate power uh, was not only his mastery of, you know, kind of the bureaucratic politics of a White House, controlling the paper flow to Ronald Reagan, but it also was uh, you know, he would have these Friday briefings with uh, the the uh, reporters for Time Magazine and Newsweek, and that mattered still back then. And they would do these reconstructions of the big dramatic events of the week. And somehow, of course, Baker, as their background source, would always be kind of in the middle of uh, of the events as they were portrayed in this first draft of history. You know, it's, it's an interesting segue to this question, because I was thinking about this uh, this morning. He was a ruthless fighter. I mean, he gave it his all during the campaigns, but then he he reeled it back and became this like pragmatic deal maker. And I guess what I'm wondering is we look at President-elect Biden today, um, how do you think he's gonna handle the progressive wing of his party? Is he going to be this pragmatist like a James Baker? Will he manage things similarly with his team? Where do you think things are going and what would, Vice President-elect Biden, excuse me, President-elect Biden, uh, take from a book like this about James Baker to help him uh, manage the government in its current state. We should send him a copy. I, I do think that Biden is um, instinctively like Baker in the sense that he wants to cut deals. He wants to work across the aisle. That is his natural instinct. He, and he's from that era to some extent. And he obviously uh, is an institutionalist, I think, like Baker is. That he believes in Washington. He believes in Congress. He believes in working together. Whether this environment allows or not, it's a different question. This environment is obviously different than it was when Baker uh, was at the height of his power. And you're right. I think that Biden will come under enormous pressure from the left within his own party to be much more sweeping or ambitious than it, maybe his natural inclination would be. And certainly than the Republican-led uh, Senate, if it stays in Republican hands, as it looks like it probably will, uh, would allow him to be. So I, you know, I think Biden would like to be a baker. I just don't know whether he either has the capacity at this particular moment, given the environment, to be it. But I think he'll try. I think he'll try. He and Mitch McConnell do have a relationship together. I do think they may not agree on big sweeping plans on climate change or healthcare, but I do think that they will avoid the kind of train wrecks we've seen in the last number of years on government shutdowns and debt ceiling crises, that kind of thing. I, I imagine that McConnell and, and Biden can probably work their way through. When you think about 2000 and the stress on the country as we were waiting for the results in Florida, and it has been reported, and you guys can tell me if it's true or not, that the, the White House reached out to James Baker related to the current electoral outcome. Uh, how is it different from today? 
And if that is true, why do you think somebody like James Baker did not accept the appointment that he accepted from the Bushes in 2000? Well, it's interesting. We did speak with uh, Secretary Baker the other day, and we asked him about this because it was reported that Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, was he was in search of not Baker himself, I should say, but a, a James Baker-like figure. Uh, and uh, they actually, Baker told us they did not reach out to him directly. Uh, but uh, you know, clearly he's much invoked. And the reason is pretty simple because he's perceived as somebody who would uh, both have the enormous stature and credibility uh, that was needed to reassure the country at a time like that disputed 2000 election, but also the knife fighter chops uh, to figure out one way or another a legal strategy uh, that would put them uh, in the right. And that was what was interesting about Baker, the pragmatist back in 2000 in Florida. Uh, you know, many Republican lawyers felt that, you know, as a matter of principle, uh, that they were believers in states' rights, that uh, matters like state recounts belonged in state courts. Uh, Baker, essentially from day one, looked at the situation in Florida and he said, we're going to federal court. And he had a very, uh, you know, my job here is to win perspective on, on that. And he thought that the Florida Supreme Court was all Democratic appointees, that it didn't look good for them. Uh, and uh, he wasn't sure of the outcome uh, in the Supreme Court, but he felt that that was a better course. And he essentially, uh, you know, sort of won the argument over those Republican lawyers, even on his own team, who were not so sure about it. But, you know, look, the bottom line is, that was a really different situation than today. Number one, most important thing, as Baker said to us when we talked to him, we never said don't count the votes. What an absurd thing to say. You can't really make that argument in the United States. Uh, the votes had already been counted. And in fact, there had already been the automatic recount in Florida. The question was what additional recounting should go on, what to do with questionable ballots with the hanging chads and everything. And so that was very different. And then the, the other thing of course, is that you had two candidates in George W. Bush and Al Gore who both believed in the American system. And in fact, their main concern for both of them was how do we get to an outcome that everyone can accept and how do we uh, make sure that we haven't undermined American democracy in this. And of course, we now have the exact opposite situation where the president himself is the underminer. So what do you think happens? <laughs> now? Yeah. Well, look, you know, I think we're going to see a very, you know, still potentially volatile 70 day period. The president is still president for until January 20th. We've just seen today he's fired the defense secretary. There's very likely to be more uh, firings, we think, in the days to come that could lead to a period of un un uncertainty and instability. I don't think there's any chance. It doesn't seem like overturning the election just to make everybody understand that. The challenges he's put in court, first of all, haven't gone anywhere. Judges haven't been uh, all that open to him. And second of all, even if he won, I mean, he's not alleging there's no actual allegation of any specific fraud that would over that would create so many votes that it would overturn his election. He's just they're, they're li literally just sort of flailing at this point by arguing about whether the observers should have been six feet away or 20 feet away. I mean, things that don't really change the outcome. And I think that he just wants to create enough noise out there so that he can explain that he didn't actually lose. It was stolen from him and, and, and on and on. Well, will he concede? I don't know. You may know him. You obviously know him better than I do. I would love your opinion. Will he actually leave, you know, gracefully on January 20th? It's a good question, but he will be, I think, not president at noon on January 20th, whatever he decides to do. Well, I mean, let me put it to you this way. Uh, since 
the uh, Scaramucci is now an 11 day time period. He will have been president for 132.78 Scaramucci's. Uh, and unfortunately right now for the country, we have six and a half more Scaramucci's to go. And I think the last six are gonna be really tough on the country, okay? Because the guy's basically a sore loser and a big time baby. So we'll have to see, uh, you know, some people have told me they're very close to him. He's gonna take a powder in Mar-a-Lago in December not to be seen again in Washington. Uh, that is a real crybaby pants. I mean, that is just like in elementary school when some kid had the football and was taking the football and taking it home with him. So I hope he doesn't do that, but uh, everything that he's doing right now is providing more evidence to the American people about why people like myself who worked for him said, okay, you can't have this guy be president. He's just not fit to be in that job. I was a little surprised by James Baker, and I want to ask this one last question, uh, because when I've met uh, Secretary Baker in the past, he always struck me as a guy that had this centered, principled nature to himself. Yes, pragmatist, but sens sensible, uh, principled nature. Were you guys surprised at his support uh, uh, for the president in here prior to the election? You know, look, we struggled with this really for four years. So in a way, uh, you know, eventually it was less surprising to us uh, in the sense that, you know, we asked him the same question over and over again and he never gave a different answer. And so in, at a certain point, if somebody tells you who they are, you have to listen. For whatever reason, Jim Baker chose at the age of 90, uh, the identity of a partisan and of, you know, choosing his party. Uh, and when we, you know, asked him this multiple times this year, uh, you know, that's what he fell back on is this idea that, well, you know, there's some terrible possible consequences. The left is gonna, you know, pull the country too far away. You know, and it, it, not, it didn't seem very convincing to us, but again, it was a conscious choice on his part. And so that told me both about what his views of power uh, and that right now we live in such a partisan moment uh, that you basically have to pick an identity and stick with it. The other thing is, look, we talk a lot about his accomplishments in the book as, as a statesman, as a negotiator, as Secretary of State dealing with the Soviets, uh, but he was a very hard-edged political player and partisan, uh, and you look at the 1988 presidential campaign, and you can see a through line from that campaign to the, the scorched earth politics of today. And, you know, uh, uh, Baker and Bush, they didn't govern like that kind of partisan because Washington was different then. But they ran a politics where they, they took Michael Dukakis, essentially a mild-mannered technocratic governor of Massachusetts, and they turned him into, uh, you know, a flag-burning, Pledge of Allegiance-hating, criminal coddling, uh, you know, enemy of the state. And they understood in very crass terms that that was actually the only way uh, for George Bush to win when he was 17 points down uh, coming out of the conventions. And so, you know, you can look at that aspect of Jim Baker's record too, the Willie Horton ads. Yeah, Lee and, Atwater, uh, James Baker. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, he always had this duality to him. And I think that's what we explored in, in the book. Okay, well, it's a, it's a fabulous tour de force. There's some great history in this book as well. And uh, I love the book. Uh, my last question before I turn it over to audience participation is what did James Baker think of the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's still talking to us. That's good. <laughs> he is talking to us. Look, he okay. wrote two memoirs of his own, right? So he had a chance to say what he wanted to say about his own life. Um, 
I think he was, I think he cooperated with the way he did because he realized if you're going to be a figure in history, somebody else has to write a biography about you, right? And he had already written two of his own books. So he, he gave us all time in the world. He gave us complete access to his archives at Princeton and Rice University. We interviewed all eight of his children, his wife, his cousin, his nanny, who's 107 years old and still around, as well as all the poobahs, you know, the presidents and vice presidents and so forth. And I think it was because he wanted somebody to tell his story who was independent and had, you know, credibility beyond his own, uh, you know, circle. And so there are things in the book he didn't like. He, he, his joke is, uh, I told him it could be warts and all, and I wouldn't object to that. I didn't mean all the warts, right? That's his joke. But I think that overall, he thinks it's a fair and, and most you know, accurate presentation. He's told people that we've talked to that he learned things from the book that he didn't know because we interviewed so many other people, I think. So if it's a revelation to him, maybe it could be a revelation to other readers too. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great book. Uh, I'm, uh, thank you guys for writing it. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount from it. And I appreciate you joining us. But we have our audience. So we have a pretty vigorous audience participation here. So I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. That's great. Thank, thank you. you. Thank so you, much. Anthony. Appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. Yeah, and thank you guys again for your time. It's, it's great to have you on, especially in this moment when everything you're writing about and talking about is so relevant. Uh, one thing that struck me uh, in reading the book and in thinking about the Trump era is, you know, Trump is, you know, he's sort of a wannabe dictator in a lot of ways. And, and he has some sort of dictatorial instincts, but he's not particularly competent uh, about Washington. He doesn't understand how things work. He wasn't able to navigate the political establishment despite some worldviews that were potentially dangerous for the country. What do you think, you know, the example that Trump set within the Republican Party about how to be successful if we got a combination of James Baker and Donald Trump in the White House? Is that something that scares you? And, and how do you think that would play out if we get somebody who's more astute in terms of understanding how Washington works, that has these instincts that are more illiberal uh, than any leader that we've had as a country. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that that is one of the very scary scenarios uh, that we just avoided here. Now, other people have asked us a version of this question, like, you know, could Jim Baker have made Donald Trump's White House work, you know, if he was White House chief of staff? My answer to that actually is, is a pretty unequivocal no, uh, in the sense that, A, I, someone like Jim Baker wouldn't have taken the job because you couldn't succeed at it. Uh, and that really nobody could have been an effective uh, chief of staff, in my view, for Trump, because you know, you look at the history of him both in office and also just him before that as, as a businessman, it's clear uh, that his personality, uh, it's just impossible for somebody to uh, you know, have the, the independence and stature and authority uh, uh, to really do things uh, uh, in, in a professional way around Trump. That's just, just anathema to who he is in any job description. Uh, that being said, you know, look at history, right? Like, a lot of the descriptions of not all, but but many, uh, you know, sort of authoritarians or you know wannabe kind of dictators, you know, they have some similarities in terms of personality type to Trump. Many of them were described as buffoonish or you know not very you know successful in terms of organizing things. And you know what's remarkable is that uh, over time, right, um, uh, people can learn to adapt. And so I do think that in in a second term, had Trump managed to pull it out, uh, he would have uh, accomplished more and more of what his agenda was and the agenda of people around him. So I do think, you know, that was a very, very, very close call and that, you know, someone else could be successful uh, with that kind of politics. So 
Our next question is about foreign policy. So James Baker is known as a diplomat, both at home and abroad. He believed very firmly in the power of diplomacy. You know, the Obama administration in a lot of ways adopted a similar tack. They tried to engage in diplomacy, even with some of the countries that, you know, like North Korea, like Iran, that others believed we should institute maximum pressure campaigns, which the Trump campaign then did in Iran. If James Baker was Secretary of State today, do you think that he would follow sort of the more Republican doctrine today of maximum pressure, more standoffish foreign policy? Or do you think that it would look more like an Obama emphasized diplomacy type of presidency, Peter? It's a great question. I think he, I, it would be a mix in some ways. You know, he would be strategic about the way he thought about it. It wouldn't be a one size fits all solution. There were, there are instances in the world where he would have been uh, favored maximum pressure. I suspect he thinks that negotiating with North Korea wouldn't be uh, a fruitful prospect because they weren't going to come up with, uh, with a deal that would be acceptable and therefore maybe maximum pressure might make sense in an economic uh, sense. But he would be pushing to talk with Iran, for instance. When, when, in the late George W. Bush presidency, one of the things he did with the Iraq study group was really push both Bush and Condi Rice to reopen you know, diplomatic avenues with Iran, with Syria, and to talk with the, you know, to try working on the Israeli-Palestinian issue in a way that they were not before, because he does believe in diplomacy. Now, he didn't, he, I don't think he thinks that the Iran deal that Obama came up with was actually good enough. He's criticized that, but he does like the idea of, of, of a deal, and he thinks that had it been done better, that that would have been, you know, a, a better situation for the country than a, the confrontation that we're in right now. We have a question that pertains to Russia, and I'm going to turn it into a two-part question. Uh, the question specifically is that Putin claimed that during the breakup of the Soviet Union, assurances were given to Putin and leadership there that NATO would not expand into the former Soviet Union, and he cites assurances that were given by diplomats that included James Baker. Is this true? Uh, and, and do you think the Bush team was the best to handle that era of foreign policy? And then what now do you think happens uh, between the relationship uh, with the United States and Russia, given that you know Russia is a bipartisan consensus at this point that they helped Donald Trump get elected? How do you think they pivot their relations and their approach to dealing with the United States, Susan? Yeah, so those are both really great questions. Just quickly on the uh, uh, Baker and his negotiations with Gorbachev, he did use uh, uh, at one point uh, this phrase, not one inch to the east, uh, uh, language, but I think the context has often been misrepresented. It's become kind of one of Vladimir Putin's talking points, and so that's why you hear it a lot now. Uh, you know, the context at the time was a question of what was going to happen to East Germany. They're talking about unification of Germany's, and there were several hundred thousand Soviet troops still in East Germany. They were going to be withdrawn, and the question was uh, if the reunified Germany was going to join NATO. Uh, you know, what would that mean in terms of this? Remember, at the time, both the Soviet Union still existed and the Warsaw Pact still existed. So it was a very, very different conversation uh, than the modern context in which is often sort of uh, misquoted. Even then, uh, Baker was straying from his official uh, talking points, and it was seen as a, a mistake. He quickly uh, uh, backed away from that. Uh, he never repeated that again. And when they actually did sign uh, the deal for German unification, there was no such language involved. And so, you know, this has been kind of used, it's a little bit of a canard, right? Like nobody was talking about NATO expansion uh, beyond Germany at that point in time, because again, the Warsaw Pact still existed. You know, what it what it tells you is, uh, you know, the question of what kind of a 
victory did the US win in the Cold War, right? Like that's essentially what it's about. And, and Vladimir Putin has always held the idea, you know, that we imposed some kind of a harsh victor's peace uh, on the Russians and that he's, you know, trying to revise that. But, you know, the truth is that, that NATO expansion came much later in two rounds that began with Bush's successor, Bill Clinton. Interestingly, when we had a conversation recently uh, with Secretary Baker about this, he said that he thought, you know, you could make the argument that maybe we had uh, expanded NATO too much uh, or, you know, had not really thought through what the implications of that were. But that was actually uh, sort of a subsequent era's political fight that, that he and Bush did not shape the outcome of. So that's number one. Just quickly on Russia going forward, you know, I would say this, you haven't heard Vladimir Putin congratulating uh, President-elect Joe Biden yet. Uh, and even though most other world leaders, even those close to uh, Trump, uh, like Benjamin Netanyahu have done so, um, there's a reason for that. Biden, uh, when he was vice president and, and chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you know, was always very skeptical of Putin and uh, Russian power. In fact, he was kind of the designated envoy during the Obama years to uh, people like Ukraine uh, and Georgia who were pushing back against revisionist uh, Russian power in the region. And so I do think you're gonna see uh, a kind of renewed partnership with uh, our European allies on the question of, you know, how to hold the line against the Russians, uh, you know, what, what, what can happen uh, to challenge Putin's view. Putin with Trump has taken this triumphalist view that somehow, uh, you know, the decadent West has actually been defeated, <laughs> uh, that his form of illiberalism has won. So Peter, I'll turn to you on this one. You wrote an article in the New York Times recently about sort of the split within the Republican Party about you know, what do we do right now? How can we convince President Trump to concede or do we throw our weight behind him with these frivolous lawsuits attempting to, you know, they don't even really seem like wholehearted attempts to overturn the results, but just to undermine the results and, and try to maintain some grip on power. Do you think there's any leadership in the Republican Party or, or anyone close to Trump that is going to be able to intervene and cause him to concede the election? Or do you think we're going to continue all the way through until January with Trump claiming that he's the rightful victor and we're going to have a sort of muddled transition of power in a way that we've never seen? Yeah, uh, I'd go for muddled. Uh, I think that, uh, look, you've seen some leading Republican figures come out and congratulate President-elect Biden, including former President George W. Bush, including Senator Mitt Romney and so forth. And you've seen some Republicans say to the president, in effect, look, you don't seem to have anything there. Stop saying stuff like this, including Governor Christie, uh, who has been an advisor of his over the years. But most of the Republican office holders these days are trying to sort of straddle this uncomfortable line between you know, saying more or less, well, if he has anything to, you know, he has every right to challenge anything he wants to challenge, take it to court but they're not embracing the conspiracy theory. Uh, and so they're trying to some, somewhere between acknowledging the, the result and you know, crossing uh, the president. And I think that the president is just, uh, you know, he, is, he has said over and over again, he does not like losing. You know, for him, the, the idea of being tagged as a loser is, is unacceptable. And if there's anything he can do, even if he leaves office peacefully and, and on time, to avoid that tag by saying this is a stolen election, it's not a legitimate election. I think he's going to continue to do that. He said the 2016 election, 
that elected him was crooked and that he actually won the popular vote somehow, which of course- He had to he recycle. Yeah, he's recycling the narrative that he had ready to go uh, when right. Hillary potentially was gonna be the winner and he's exactly. recycling it now in 2020. Exactly. And I think that, you know, that for him, the danger though is looking more and more uh, feckless as, as people just sort of begin to tune him out and, and ignore him, which is maybe why he fires a defense secretary or does things like that to kind of refocus attention on himself as everybody else Powerful. is trying to turn back to, 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 to Biden at this point. Yeah, he's, he's trying to look presidential and the best way to do that is to show that you still have the power to fire people. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm sure he's tossing and turning today as the news of the vaccine, uh, positive early results of the, the vaccine get released a few days after the election. I'm sure that'll be another a point of conspiracy for him. Well, uh, but we'll leave it right there. Uh, yeah. Peter and Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Anthony, you have a final word for Peter and Susan before we let them go? No, listen, I thought it was a terrific book. I'm going to hold it up again. You know, you guys know that I'm not that promotional, as you guys know about me. So I'm going to hold it up again and say thank you very, very much. Uh, it's a phenomenal tour de force in literally the last 40 years in American politics. And uh, I, I greatly enjoyed it. I think this is going to be something that people are going to be reading 10 or 15 years from now. This book has legacy uh, the same way the Caro book, in my opinion, did about uh, Robert Moses. So God bless you guys. Best of luck with the book. And thank you for joining uh, Salt Talks. Thank Anthony, you so John, much. Thank you guys so much. It's a lot of fun. This is great. Okay. Wish you the best. Have a great thank day. You.